All right, good morning. Let's uh, flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we'll f- finish the chapter this morning. <clears throat> so as you recall, we've been going through the book, or the, the letter I should say, and different ways that Paul is writing uh, correction to a church uh, that's fallen into quite a bit of dysfunction and sin. And it all stems from, we never want to lose sight of the idea that's being uh, given here, communicated here, that it's, it's down to two natures, two, two different natures, two different wisdom, wisdoms, I should say. And on the one nature, the nature that we're born with, the one that is, acts out and is sinful in its essence, the one that causes us rage, covetousness, that all those things that come out of our hearts, right? But that's one way we can live, even as Christians, listening to and adhering to the wisdom and the calls of that nature. Self-preeminence, if, if, if we wanted to boil it down. And then there's a second nature, a nature that for all those who've called upon the name of the Lord Jesus and are saved, that, that we all received, if we've received Christ, and that's the nature that, that it's called the new man, the new creation in Christ, or the new nature, that was created in Christ when he rose from the dead, that he declared victory over sin, victory over our nature, that we do not have to obey that old nature anymore. Do what comes natural, we might say. We don't have to do that anymore. That now we're sealed, literally signet-ringed by the Holy Spirit, we're told there in Ephesians chapter 1, and that we have power from God through his Spirit, who has attached himself to our soul, and we're able to now walk in what God has for us. And one way leads to death in our hearts, and for those around us, it'll bear a fruit, and one will lead to life for those around us in our hearts, right? And it has a fruit. And so what's happened is, in different ways, the Corinthians have made a habitual lifestyle of some of them, we're speaking in general, of living according to that old nature that always says, me first, it says, preserve myself, make sure I get mine, no one will disrespect me. No one will treat me poorly. Everybody will know how great I am, right? Those are all thoughts and wisdom from that, that old nature, and that's what they're living in. So as we get to the second half of 1 Corinthians 11, it's the same idea. Something's happening in Corinth. It's causing a significant amount of destruction and hindrance to building the, the kingdom of God, which is what we're involved in. And now Paul is, is writing back to address that. So that's where we pick up. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and in verse 17, Paul says this, And the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this manner. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after uh, supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we'll stop there for the moment, but we can see Paul laying out a corrective uh, paragraph, if you will, or statement, and then an educational statement. And in the first paragraph, I think this is perhaps for me, maybe not for you. I don't uh, want to demand the same gravity of you or something weird like that. But in verse 17, I think this is one of the most profound statements about what can happen to a church. Because he says there in verse 17, in the following directives, I have no praise for you. Okay, he says, there's nothing good I'm going to say about you. There's no praise for me to give you. There's no compliment for me to give you about what I'm about to say. And he says this, for your meetings do more harm than good. Think about that for a second. If we go back to 1 Corinthians 1, you don't have to turn there, but if we just glance at it, he says this, I always thank my God for you, verse 4. He says, in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. He says in verse 6 that that, uh, they're in, in parts they're confirming the testimony of Christ among them, that his presence is there. In verse 7, he says, you don't lack any spiritual gift. In verse 8, he says, he will keep you until the end. In verse 9, he says, God is faithful, who called you into fellowship. So you have in the beginning of the letter there, Paul writes all these incredible things. And I think for most of us, and again, I don't want to speak for you, for for me anyway, they had the knowledge, right? They had the revelation of who Jesus is, what his kingdom's about, what he's wanting to do. They had the speakers, right? He says, you have the spirits. They had all the spiritual gifts. You had people giving words of prophecy and words of wisdom in private and in, in appropriate public meetings. You had everything you would think that's needed to be able to say of your church meetings, you do more good than harm. But in the end, something, this one thing is happening. Well, I should say one thing in which he makes this claim. They're neglecting each other at a meal. And they're treating each other poorly at a meal. And he says, because of this reality, when you guys meet, you actually hurt people in, in light of the kingdom of heaven, more than you help them in light of the kingdom of heaven. And the, the, the important part of this, I think, there's probably a lot of them, but in this case that we're going to draw attention to, is that helping or hurting people during a mealtime has nothing to do with really any of the other gifts, does it? That's squarely on our shoulders as we sit and we eat together. It's not the leadership's fault. It's not the staff's fault. It's not the volunteers' fault. It's not the worship team's fault. It's not anybody's fault except the people that are doing it. And I, and I draw attention to that, not to alleviate anybody of anything, but to make the point that each one of us have a contribution that actually helps people in the kingdom of heaven. And it helps in one of the most mundane ways that we can think of while we're eating together, Right? We know that this was the practice of the church. We know from history, it's not in the Bible, but we know from history and tradition from the church fathers that they called these feasts love feasts, right? We called them potlucks. They called them love feasts. And you'll note that when, when, he, when Paul talks about how communion comes about, it's after they had supped. So the early church, the way they did it, we have it, the communion this morning, and the way, we, you know, the way we do it is that essentially we have it part of our worship service where we, we get into the Word, we worship the Lord, we get into the Word, then we'll get back into some worship time, and during the worship time, we'll, we'll partake. In the early church, it wasn't like that. Not, so much, not that we ever really read about. 
It was more red that what happened was you would have a post-church meal. So we meet at a nice, convenient time, and I'm not trying to make an assault with that, but we meet in a nice, convenient time and, and, and these different things. They typically met either late at night or early in the morning. And it was because the, you have all sorts of people. One, they don't just get Sunday off, right? They don't have the, the American work week or the European work week. Uh, the other thing, too, is that many of the early believers were slaves, right? We know that. We know that because, well, we know Luke was a slave, uh, but we know that in all the letters, or I shouldn't say all of them, the, the vast majority of the letters that how to a slave re, you know, responds to and interacts with his boss, that that was... Can we get that squared away? Oh, okay. It's all right. Oh, maybe somebody can help you out of that. <laughs> so don't worry about it too much. <laughs> I'm kidding. Don't worry about it at all. I'm sorry. <laughs> so what's happening is you have this whole demographic of people. They're poor. They don't get a choice whether they work or not. So they meet at times that can accommodate that, right? So it was very normal to either have gone to work or be going to work after church. And it was very normal in a time, remember, first century Rome, uh, we've said it before, we'll say it again, the, the goal of most human beings in that time, whether it's in Rome or outside of Rome, that their goal was to get enough calories. Uh, you can read that in all sorts of extra biblical history everywhere. It's, it's not like today, you know, it's not like how we live. So when they got together for a meal, there was a very real practical part of it that, that there were people that were going to eat like junk the rest of the, the week. And so there was opportunity to be able to share with one another and to be able to bless one another. We know that this was also uh, extra biblically and from the Bible that this was commonplace. When the, first, the church first got together, we read in Acts 2.42 that one of the things they were given to was fellowship. We read that they ate and they broke their bread with thankfulness house to house. That They were continually eating together. They were continually fellowshipping together. As a side note, uh, you know, take this or leave it. I think that fellowship is kind of gets kind of gets this like backseat idea sometimes where it's like, oh, you got the word, the word. Yeah, the word's important, right? We, we, we can buy into that. We love the Bible. The Bible's good stuff. It, it governs our lives. It helps us, it encourages us, it convicts us. And then we have worship. Well, clearly worship's important. We need to consider who God is and, and, and claim that in, in his name and, and worship him, cherish him is the idea there, lay down our lives before him. That's important, right? And then you have the, the uh, apostles, doctors, different things like that. But fellowship, where we interact. Because see, fellowship is where worship and the word, and all, it's where they get actually real. Because the word, the, the, the word is very, can be very abstract, if we're not interacting with people. It can just be this thing like, well, I know I should be nice. But then if I'm not interacting with people, I don't, I don't practice that. So I don't know. I, I'm a big fellowship fan. I think it wins souls. And I think that it, it encourages people. And it helps them and actually opens the door for those other things. Prayer and the word, worship, right? And so I think when Paul comes back here and he makes this statement. And he says, because of this Sin, this destruction, this habitual, whatever's happening, this, this greed that's going on in your, in your love feast, in your fellowship time, your meetings together are actually becoming more destructive. So I, I think we need to take a note on that, that how we treat each other in fellowship is a very, very important idea. And it's not something to be left out. It's not something to be like, oh, you know, whatever. 
but it's something to be considered and embraced because that's how we contribute to one another's lives. So he says there, verse 18, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Now, if you remember, this is the same word where he says divisions all the way back in chapter 1 and 2, where he's talking about the first thing that he addresses is he says, hey, it's among you that there's divisions. The word there is schismata or schisms, tears, literally tears in the church. And originally, when he talked about it in chapter 1, if you remember back there, he talked about, he said that there were people in the church, groups of people that were saying, I'm of Peter, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Jesus. And it wasn't just that they were saying like, hey, I really like this guy's teaching. Like, hey, when I, when I listen to this gal, this guy's teachings, and th- they really encourage me. Or when this person, you know, shares something with me, it's such a word of prophecy to me. They're not saying that. They're, they're, they're doing more than just saying, I can appreciate what these people are, are saying. What they're doing is they're actually making divisions and establishing hierarchies and essentially dividing people up to say, no, you know what, Paul's so much more worth following. His you know, exegesis on how the gospel works, in, gospel works in Romans, and man, he's so methodical, and it's like a court case, and it's just so bulletproof. He's so much better than that Apollos guy who's just kind of eloquent, and he just talks about the gospel all the time, and like, oh, come on. You, you like Apollos? Give me a break. That's ridiculous. So they're causing this huge schism. He references it again here, and he says, when you guys get together, there are divisions. He doesn't say they're the same divisions or different divisions. It seems to be that the divisions are based around either on household, and this is an inference, so feel free to throw it away, but if you look into it, it seems to be that the issue is either among households or among uh, economic position. Because the problem is that what you have is that people that have are keeping to themselves, right? Isn't that what we read? He says, some of you come together and you eat your supper together, and so you get enough, you get drunk, you have so much that you have excess, and there are other people in your body that sit there and watch, and they're hungry, right? That's the beef. So he says there's these divisions that are there, they're being formed, and the divisions are actually causing other people in the body to be robbed of food. Now, this is the interesting thing, he, and he, he says it in here, maybe noteworthy is a better term for that. It was their food, right? It was theirs. He says that they come and they eat their food. So there's, there's something here that I think we have to recognize, that over and over in our calling as Christians, we are called to let go of what is ours, Right? We're called to not claim things for ourselves. In fact, we just read in, in really 8, 9, and 10 that no one, none of us ought to live in a way we, we please ourselves, but that we should live in a way where we please others. Paul, remember in chapter 9, he says, I do all things for all people. He says, I, I, to a Jew, I become like a Jew. I, I walk under the law to win Jews. To someone who's outside of the law, to a Gentile, I walk as if there's no law, but not without God's love and, you know, the law of love in my life. So he makes this idea, he's, he's putting forth this idea that our lives are to be spent on one another. And so what's happening is, in Corinth, that's not happening at all, at least among some people. Instead, there's divisions. There's, there, I mean, can you imagine? And, and I'm not saying like, oh, those terrible people. I can't imagine. But can you imagine? You're sitting and you bring, let's say that you're, you're a slave. Very real thing to happen. And, and your master lets you go to church. 
and you're telling your other slave that, you, that is owned by the same guy, oh, man, we go to this place, you're going to learn about who Jesus was. Remember that guy a few years ago that got crucified? All these people saw him rise from the dead, right? There's no Bibles. There's no, nothing's been written yet. It's all word of mouth. Hey, I want you to come with me. It's changed my life. I want you to come with and see all these people that have just got to meet this guy, Jesus, who rose from the dead, and he forgives everything you've done, and you can come with me to meet all these people that are just trying to follow Jesus, and that, and that, that person comes with you, and you show up, and you're like, oh, it's love feast day. What's up? Nice, great. They, oh, man, these people, they bring these great food. And then there you go, and there, you, know, you hear the word. You worship together. Everybody kind of goes, and all of a sudden, the senators or whoever it is that has a lot of money, they kind of go in the corner, and they just start eating and drinking wine, and you're kind of standing there like, you know, I, we're, we, we got to go back and serve for the next 24 hours. Maybe... I heard it's love feast day, and they just eat. And pretty soon they're drunk. What are drunk people like? Right? Either they're extra extrovert or they're extra introvert. And you, can you imagine staring, you know, being hungry? Your stomach's growling. You just told this person, you just brought them to see how great God is and what he's doing among his people. And, 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 and what he's doing among his people is that they're eating in front of you and you get nothing. How devastating that would be to you. How shamed you would have feel, right? You'd feel ashamed. You'd be like, I don't want to bring anybody here ever again. I'm ashamed to be with you know, these people. So that's, that's what's going on. That's what's happening. And so he's, you know, Paul, he's making this point, and he says, look, there's these divisions, and these divisions, whether it's political or it's racial or it's, um, we know there were racial issues in the very beginning of the church between Jews and, and Gentiles, whether it's economical, whatever it is, there's these things that are happening and the, the, there's the haves and there's the have-nots. And so Paul says because the haves are denying the have-nots, and it, it, maybe it's inadvertent, I mean, could someone be that clueless? I don't know. Maybe it's because they don't want to get seen with slaves they don't want to be at church and, and, and have their other people of influence. We know that, that Roman Praetorians got saved, right? Those are guys of influence. A Roman Praetorian, they got chose by how big their muscles were and how handsome they were. They were the ones that, that, that guarded Caesar himself, and they were not ugly dudes guarding Caesar. Only pretty men got to guard Caesar. And they had stature because they were Praetorian guards. Maybe if you're a Praetorian guard and you go to the church, you, you show up, you're like, ooh, yeah, aren't you like that senator's slave? Yeah, I don't think I'm going to hang out with you. So that kind of stuff is what's happening. And Paul says, because that's happening in your church, your church that has all the knowledge, all the good speakers, all the, all the giftings, all the prophecy, all the everything you could want, because you guys are doing that, he says to Corinth, you're causing more damage than you are helping the kingdom. See, each one of us, as we were saying, we, we, have a, we have gifting and we have responsibility. That's what the next chapter is. The next chapter, 12, 13, and 14, are about giftings, specific giftings in this case, but about giftings. And that each one of us have been giving, given gifts to contribute to one another. And then, you know, at a, probably at a lot of sermons, you've, you've heard a lot of things about not getting to heaven on a, you know, uh, on a, on a I almost said a wheelchair. You can go to heaven if you have a wheelchair, but not you know, on a rocking chair and you know, all these different things. But it's not a gift issue, or not a guilt issue, I should say. It's opportunity to actually be part of what God is doing. 
See, we can show up and just have like our church thing where we come for an hour and a half a week and we do that. I'm not saying you guys are doing that because I don't know what your life is like. But we can do that and, and sing and, and, and feel bubbly and do these things and then leave with no other ministry. You can do that your whole life and you'll get to go to heaven because you're saved, because your sin is taken care of. But he's called us to be contributors. Now, we're all going to be in different places with different giftings, and I understand that, that some of us are stuck at home and, and can't make it out. We're not making rules here on what that means. We're just saying that we've been called to ask ourselves, God, what do you want me to do? And if I am coming to church, that every time I walk through the door, I walk through the door saying, who can I bless today? Now, I understand that we come here and, and we're hoping to get into the word and consider the word and to be encouraged. We're coming here to lift our arms and to say, to give God glory. And that is good and it's great. But we're also here not just to receive, we're here to give. We're to say, how are you? What's, what's life like for you? Is there something I can do to help you? How can I, how can I bless you? See, when we leave fellowship behind, And when church becomes a selfish endeavor, we completely miss what God's called us to. Not that we don't benefit. I hope you guys get that. I'm not saying like, oh, you better not like church. You better not benefit. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that when you come here, when I come here, that our hearts ought to be, Lord, what do you have for me? And we might say, well, I don't have a gift of prophecy, or I don't have this, or I don't have that. That's fine. You don't have to give what you don't have. You know the cool thing about the free will offering? There's this offering. You have a bunch of different offerings in the Old Testament. We actually just talked about this a few weeks ago on Thursday nights. One of the things that God says, he kind of makes two different points about this. Number one, the the free will offering, you could go your whole life and never give a free will offering. It was completely optional. And God said, I won't charge that to you. There's no guilt. If you never bring me a free will offering, there's no guilt for that, he says. Because that's what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be just a thankful offering. God, you've blessed me so much. And he says, if you never bring me one, it's fine. But what he did say, he says, don't promise to bring me one and then not. He was Because that will incur guilt. And that's old covenant stuff. But he also goes on to say, you never have to make a vow. There are different vows you could make to the Lord. And Deuteronomy 23, he says, you never have to make a vow. You can go your whole life and never say, God, I'll do this for you. Never say, I want to bless you. Never say, you don't have to say that ever. You never had to do it. But he said, if you do say it, then you need to follow through with it. What's the point? The point is that you and I are not under compulsion to serve Jesus. It has nothing to do with salvation. But we're called to lay down our life and to serve Jesus. And that's where we'll find fellowship. It's not a sin issue. It's not a, you'll be, you'll be second-class citizen. It's about, a, about growing and walking in what God has for you. And the, the tricky thing about obedience is that Jesus, I think, said it best, as he often does. He says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He doesn't say where your heart is, that's where your treasure will be, right? And what's the point? The point is this. When we invest, treasure is just value, it's just wealth, right? So when we invest, whether it's through prayer or care or whatever it might be, when you invest in another person, it's amazing that your heart comes around. See, if we wait for the emotion, if we wait to wake up and and just so, so we have some sort of like, I don't know, epiphany and we just, oh, I feel like serving people today and deny myself. 
Typically, that feeling doesn't come along, does it? But once we begin to walk in it, we begin to reconcile and to figure out how good God is and his will in our heart, it's incredible the emotion and the joy that can come from serving and from laying down our lives. Jesus also put it this way, they that seek to save their life will lose it. He's not speaking of salvation. He's saying that if you or I seek my life to, to preserve myself, make sure I don't overextend myself, make sure I, you know, maybe a bad example, but make sure that I'm always taken care of, what I'll find is emptiness. I'll find that I'll lose the thing that I'm trying to preserve. But if I lay down my life for his sake, in other words, I'm listening, I'm obedient to what he has to say, I'm considering, I'm mulling over, I'm open, I'm honest to what he wants to do in my heart. He says, that's where we'll really find our life. And the hardest part about a statement like that from our Lord Jesus is this, you can never know it until you walk in it. Right? You can't see it from afar. You can see evidence here and there, but you can't experientially, experientially know it until you take the step out and say, okay, I'm going to walk in that. So what's happening here is just it's a very specific instance in, in what we're reading today, but it's obviously very consequential where these people have divided, whatever it might be, and they're, and they're causing an absolute destruction to something that God is wanting to build. He goes on there, he says, verse 22, he says, Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Excuse me, shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. He, and he makes the point, he says, look, when you come together for this love feast, do you really have to get full here? In other words, there's a comparison, right? Because he, he compares it to, do you despise the church so much? So he says, don't you have food that you can eat at home? And then he says, or do you despise the church so you give them nothing? So the point that he's making there, he says, can't you choose to give that food away? Can't you just go hungry for a couple hours to help the people that have nothing in your body and then just go home and eat? In other words, break it down farther, can't you just say no to yourself so that other people can be blessed? That's all he's saying here. And so this, it's a profound statement. He says, when you get together, it's more for harm than good. Because realistically, all they were doing was saying yes to themselves and no to God's people. They were making sure that they were taken care of and they didn't give a rip about God's people, so much so that they were willing, they actually despised them, which I know we say that when we hate something, but that's not the idea. The idea is to have little esteem or value for something. So they, for whatever reason, whether it was status or money, they valued that more than another living soul uh, that they underestimated that they didn't appreciate. And I think maybe we're all prone to that, prone to, to look at someone else and go, eh, you're probably not as important as me. You're probably not as important as what I want. He's going to go on there, verse 23. Now he's going to give the opposite, right? He says, you guys are doing this. You're eating and drinking to the point of being full and drunk. You're watching people go hungry. But then he says, now this is what, to, this is what uh, communion is supposed to be about. He says, for I received from the Lord that which I also passed on to you. So not only do we have the recording in Luke, but we also have this recording. He says that God showed him this specifically. The Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So he lays it down. Now, this is the complete opposite, isn't it? Jesus' perspective of what he's offering them as a communion or the Lord's Supper, however you'd like to label it, his, you know, the, his perspective is this, that he gave for them. So the whole remembrance of the Lord's Supper is that God gave, that the Lord Jesus gave. So here you have a group of people that are insisting on them and, 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 and theirs and keeping what, they, what belongs to them. And, and Paul saying, no, 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 the Lord's Supper is actually about Jesus who gave everything. And he, and, he, and he gives us two different ideas from Jesus that we can also read in, in the Gospels. But the one idea is the bread. And he says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, it's important to note, Jesus is not saying that this bread is my body. Okay, And we know that from other, other texts. It's, we're not going to get into it today for time's sake. But that's the doctrine that's called transubstantiation. And it's the doctrine that says that when you... When you eat the bread and when you drink the cup, what, what's happening is you're actually eating the body and the blood of Jesus. It becomes his flesh and his blood. And that's based on a misinterpretation of John 6, where in Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in yourselves. And obviously that was a very big stumbling block to Jews. They weren't uh, to be cannibals and they weren't to drink blood. Those were two things they weren't allowed to do. But he says at the end of that, he says, my words are spirit. So he, he's, he's talking about a spiritual true to them. So a profound misunderstanding has brought uh, some people to an idea that, that you're actually essentially re-sacrificing Jesus weekly for your sins, and by ingesting him, that's how you continue to live. That's a profound misunderstanding and somewhat destructive doctrine in the sense that Jesus says it this way. He says, this is my body, right? His own body, it was his. And again, the word is soma. Why is that important? Because it's not sarka. It's not his body, like a body of, of flesh. It's soma is more the person. So he says, this is my body. This is my person that was given for you. So Jesus' remembrance and what he wants us to remember is not as a time to have status or a time to feast and just be full, but instead a time to rejoice in what he did. A time to remember that Christ came and he gave his whole person. And when you think about that, when you think about what he was like, that's, I think, one of the most impressive things about Jesus. He wasn't grudging. He wasn't angry. He wasn't uh, full of condemnation. He was kind. He was gentle. There was firm times in his life where you had the religious that were trying to challenge him. But even them, he looked on them and he loved them. And so to, to, he says, I want you to remember what my life, what life was like that I gave for you. And you think about all the different times that, you know, you have the manger and these different images like, and so forth, that there was no place for, for uh, you know, him in the, in the inn or the, you know, the big conspiracy or not conspiracy, but is it an inn? Is it a room? It, whatever. He was born. That's the important part of it. It doesn't really matter what he was born into. But the fact that he is born, if we read Isaiah 53, if we were to go back to that, it says that there was no beauty in him that we should desire him. There was nothing about him that we would want to look upon him. He didn't look like Fabio. He didn't strut around with any kind of aura. He wasn't a super attractive guy. He was an average Jewish dude, right? And he just walked on the earth and he cared about people. And he said wonderful things. It says the common people heard him gladly, that he taught, that he healed that he you know, gave spiritual truths. 
You know, even in the way he gives spiritual truths, that he would sit on a rock or stand on a boat or sit down in a boat and just say, hey, this is what my kingdom is like. And, and, and hey, there, there's, there's a sower and, and my kingdom's available to anyone. And some people will choose it and some people won't. That he would say, you can be fruitful. That he would say, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You know, all these different parts of Jesus, these different interactions with Jesus that he, he taught with questions. He didn't go, you're a stupid loser with no faith. He said, why don't you have any faith? Why don't you trust me? Isn't that kind and gentle? Just to, to, to have a, 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 not a rebuke, but a consideration, a, a, a question that would cause us to look inward to, that's a really good question, isn't it? Why would I have no faith? Why would I think that Jesus won't come through for me? And we're getting off into the weeds here, but the point is this. He was stern where he needed to be stern, but the reality was he was full of grace and truth. Right? That's how he acted. And he says, when you eat the bread, I want you to remember that. I want you to remember my person, my soma, my body that was given for you. It's not guilt, it's not shame, it's not you better. It's just the simple idea, just remember me. It's a, it can be sober, but it's never somber. It's a joyful remembrance that he was given for me, that he gave his life for me, that he loved me that much. Then the second thing, right? So it's the opposite of what the Corinthians are doing. The second thing is this. He says, I want you to remember... And he says, when after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, as new covenant people, right, that, you know, maybe the, the, the oldest among us has been on the earth for, you know, 80 or something years. We're not old covenant people. We never lived in the old covenant. And, and probably most of us, if any of us, were actual Orthodox Jew before we got saved. But for the Jew, this would be a really radical statement, right? For like three millennia, you've been told that the Passover is to celebrate when the Jews came out of Egypt. That's what you're celebrating. And to remember that God is faithful to his people. Jesus comes along and says, no, it's not about that anymore. He goes, the new covenant is in, in my blood. So for us, we're like, ah, that's cool. But that was a revolutionary idea. Because what were they doing? They were sacrificing pigeons and bulls and goats and lambs from their whole, all their lives, three times a year were mandatory sacrifices for Jewish men, right? So then all of a sudden Jesus comes along and he says, no, there's a new covenant in my blood. Now we know from the, the letter to the Hebrews that the old covenant, and this is important, the old covenant never forgave sin, right? It says that the, the, the blood of bulls and goats could not forgive sin. It created a remembrance every year of the same, and the sacrifice had to be given again. What the word that's used for forgiven in the Old Testament, and sometimes it's translated blotted, is that. It's to blot or to smear. So the Old Covenant sacrifices, the blood of bulls and goats, it never forgave sin, if you will. It, it covered it. it. It smeared over sin. And what that did, and that's why, when, like for example, when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, behold the Lamb of God. Because what the, and, and all the other... Um, Promises that were about the Messiah that would take away sin. So for a Jew, this idea that all of a sudden that Messiah has finally come and it's the end of sacrifices that you've done your whole life. And in the Old Covenant, the, 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 the overarching theme was do and live. 
don't do and die, right? But Jesus comes along and he says, no, there's a new covenant, a new interaction and basis by which you will interact with my Father. And he says, and that interaction is in my blood. And obviously there was an expansion that the, the disciples learned later on. And so the, the, the joy, right, and the excitement of that statement, and then to be called to remember that, to as often as you drink this cup, to remember that your righteousness stands no more in being smeared or sin being smeared over by, by bulls and goats' blood, but now to actually stand in a completely righteous state, fully forgiven for eternity through the blood of Jesus. So Paul, making this comparison, he says, don't you understand? You guys are doing this. You have your divisions. You have your business and your life and your priorities, and they're destroying the church, Paul says. Instead, let's do this. And after you've supped together, you've given to one another, then take the bread, then take the cup, and remember the Lord Jesus. Consider him, all that he's done for us, a joyful time. He's got a sober side to it, too. And this is something that's going on. It's, it's kind of wild. It's happening in Corinth. And it's happened other places, too. But he says there in verse 27, he says, So then, so because of this communion, oh, I'm sorry, I skipped verse 26. He says, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, we'll talk about that for a second. So what's happening at communion is a proclamation also. Not only is there a remembrance, but there's a proclamation. And the proclamation is that Jesus died and that he's coming back again. Why is that important to us? Why does that matter? Why is it challenging to the Corinthians? Because to acknowledge that Jesus died is to acknowledge sin, right? Not just his death, but what his death means to us. So they're living a life that is isolated and self-preeminent. Then you have the comparison of what communion is and the way Jesus lived. And now you have when we partake, we're proclaiming that we actually believe that. So in Corinth, when they're retracting and insisting and loving themselves, and then after all that, and after they've watched people go hungry and despise them and shame them, to come up to the table and then say, God is so good, Jesus is right, and his commandments are true, and his death has forgiven me, and make this big proclamation, and someday he's going to come back and he's going to reap justice and take his people to himself, and oh, what a day that will be. He, he says you can't, the idea is you can't do that. You can do that, and they were doing that, but there's a fallout to that. Right? So he says, we're proclaiming his death, and we're, and we're proclaiming that he's going to come again. So because of that, so then, so because there's a proclamation that happens, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in the, of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment to them, on themselves." That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. That's a very sobering idea. Let's talk about this for a few minutes. So he says there, 
because when we eat, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of, the, of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Now, the word sinning there is not actually in the uh, Greek manuscripts. And so some of your, your translations uh, rightly would say um, that you're guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. The NIV and other translations add the word sinning to kind of give the feel of what it, what's being said here. So this is one of those verses, uh, and, and we do a Bible communication class, and this is one of those verses that I would call a shrug verse. And what I mean by that is a lot of times we read something like this, and we go, that sounds really bad. I don't know what to do about it, right? Because it's kind of nebulous. Like, you sin against the body and blood of the Lord. And you're like, dang, I don't want to do that. Is that the unforgivable sin? Do I lose my salvation? Is that what Paul is saying? Does that mean that I don't have the Holy Spirit anymore? What is these? In other words, they're very boisterous and, and kind of big accusations and ideas. So big that we can kind of just go, that, that's scary. No, thank you. But what is he actually saying here? What does it mean? We're not trying to minimize it or maximize it. So when we eat the bread... And we drink the cup in an unworthy manner. We'll be guilty, guilty of, the, of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. So this is an interesting idea because where do we get worthiness from? Where do we have any kind of worthiness? Because there's some pretty big promises, right? In, in Hebrews, we're invited uh, that we have open access anytime we want into the throne of God to receive grace in a time of need, right? So that interaction doesn't require a worthiness that we produce, right? Because if we're going to God, to his throne, for grace, which is unmerited favor, you only need grace when you've messed up, right? You don't ask for someone, you don't, if you've just done somebody a huge favor, you don't say to them, oh, please have mercy on me, right? Because you don't, you don't need mercy. You just bless someone. So there's interaction with God not based on our own actions, right? Not based on our own sin, that we can come to God when we've sinned, find forgiveness, not positionally, we already had that, but in a fellowship sense, and we can interact with him and find grace when we need it, right? So that, that's, you know, our worthiness there is simply Jesus. In, in John 1, it says that we have the right to be called the children of God. Would any of us raise our hand today and say, I have the right to be called a child of God, to be claimed sonship to the Lord of the universe because I'm good, because I, I earned it this week. I read enough, I prayed enough, I was nice enough. So yes, I am the child of God. You know, hopefully, we probably wouldn't say that out loud. Sometimes that thought sneaks in. But I think when we're honest, none of us would say that, right? So there again, our worthiness is based on what Jesus did at Calvary, the new covenant in his blood, right? But yet in our context here, there seems to be something that's happening that's causing them to die, Right? That's what Paul says, that you're, because you're doing this thing, there's a, you're incurring a judgment, and some of you are actually getting sick and you're dying, sleeping. To fall asleep is a Christian idea. You're actually dying. So there's a judgment that is occurring to believers, and it's because they're coming and they're partaking unworthily. The definition or the idea here is, think of it this way, unworthily. It's, it's the idea that when they're coming to the Lord's Supper, they're not giving it worth. In other words, they're, they're just making this proclamation willy-nilly. Not somber, like we have to feel sad and guilt-ridden and all that, but sober to realize that the God of the universe loves us and paid for our sin, 
And now we get to walk with him and experience all those benefits and that love and that communion with one another and with him and the, the filling of a spirit. We have all these incredible realities in our life now. So to come to the Lord's Supper and to say, like, I'm proclaiming his death when it means nothing to me. And in this case, specifically, I'm demonstrating that because I'm shaming his people and holding on to what, is, what I believe is my own, that I have every right to of myself. He says that, there's that, that that's partaking in an unworthy manner. And he says, because you're not examining yourself, you're not considering, you're not discerning, right? All these different ways. Verse 28, he says, everyone who ought to examine themselves, uh, excuse me, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat. So there's something that's happening where there's no examination of their life. They're just willy-nilly partaking. And so what ends up happening is they, they, they come to the, the bread and the cup, giving it no worth, no value, no real intrinsic acknowledgement of who they are and what Jesus did for them and how they should reflect that to others. And so what happens is, is they become guilty of sinning or guilty against the body and the blood of the Lord. In other words, they're doing something that contradicts everything Jesus came to do and, and buy or to, to the covenant. Everything he said and everything he did when they were acting in the way they were acting, shaming God's people, treating them poorly, and then coming uh, inebriated and, and satiated while others were hungry around them and partaking at the end of their love feast, that was unworthy. They were not assigning worth to what God actually did. Does that make sense? So we can really take a lot of the kind of the mystery out of it in the sense of like, oh, guilt. So what's happening is they're sinning against and they're denouncing. Not maybe with their words or out loud, but by their actions, they're denouncing the reality of how of the truth of God's word. In other words, think of it this way. If God tells me, hey, you know what? If you treat your wife poorly, that'll cause, that's sin, and it will cause difficulty in your life, in your marriage, and ultimately there'll be an accountability for that. That's all in the Bible, right? So if I treat my wife poorly, what does that say about me? I don't believe it, right? I actually think that I'll gain life and that me treating my wife poorly or trying to whatever that means for you, trying to manipulate her or trying, you know, something like that, I, I, what I'm doing is I'm denying the very word of God, aren't I? I'm saying that actually I can get good from doing what God said is bad. So in, in the, the, the key, the root of every single sin of our life is unbelief. That's really important. I don't believe what God said is true, therefore I will act out in this way because I want to. And whether it's I don't think the consequences will be there or I don't think... Uh, my kids will learn unless I really get on them or I don't think, you know, whatever it might be. But it's, he's saying, no, this, what's happening here in Corinth is because of what they're doing. They're diminishing God's word among his people and they are causing harm to his kingdom, the building of his kingdom. That's what's happening. So he says, because of that, you're, you're guilty of or you're sinning against, you're, you're making little of the body and the blood of the Lord. And so he says, because of that, there's a consequence to that. Well, at first he says that we all ought to examine ourselves. But in verse 29 he says, for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. So their actions, this is a response to their actions, right? So we can demystify this too. Because their actions were self-perseverance, self-exaltation, and they weren't discerning, right, to think about wisely or to consider the body of Christ. Now, this could have two different meanings. 
And guess what? Nobody knows what it is. It's widely argued. Is he saying that they're not discerning literally the body of Christ, which is a reference throughout all the, the letters the, as, as Christians, as individuals? In other words, that they're not discerning the people around them, not considering and measuring, not in a, in a judgment way, but like where people are at, how they could help them, that the body, and that's what they're doing? Or is it that because they are not discerning what, why Christ gave his life and what he says is life? It's probably both. You know, it is what it is. But what's happening is they're not thinking about and applying wisdom to what God has done for them. And so he says that incurs a judgment. Now, this is not final judgment. We know that. This is not losing salvation, and we know that from the passage. Because he says, that is why many of you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. So he says, doing this is causing something, and God is either allowing or causing. That's probably an infinite question there. But it's this. He's, he, he's causing them sickness and death. Now, I want to take a moment here. We are not going to carry this past the actual context. All right? This is not health wealth. This is not, well, if you had enough faith, then you'd never get sick and you'd always be rich and all that. that we're not going there. That's not a true doctrine. We don't have time to break down the myriads of verses that show that fact. But we're not talking about that. This is a very specific context where Paul is saying, you guys in Corinth are doing this, and it's causing some of you to die. God is taking you from that. They're, they're so destructive to God's kingdom that he's taking them out of that position. We see this in other places too, right? We have with Ananias and Sapphira, uh, where they try to get clout amongst the brethren by lying about how much money they give, and God takes their lives there in the early church. Uh, we have... Um, Different things where you have uh, the, the Jewish um, exorcists and the demons jump on them and beat them to a pulp publicly. And so they're, they're shown to be false exorcists. So you, you have example after example of things happening to people that were God allowing or working those things so that he could remove them because they were causing too much destruction. That's the lesson here. So the, the, it's still a warning to us, right? that we could be in a position where we're causing so much damage to God's kingdom that God removes us from that possibility anymore, which is a scary thing. But he goes on to say, and he says, verse 32, or I'm sorry, verse 31, he says, um, but if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. You know, this is the core of all Christian life. That sounds dramatic, but it's the truth. It's the truth. If we were more discerning of ourselves. This is so important because we have desperately wicked hearts, right? Is that what Jeremiah tells us? That the heart of our hearts, not their hearts, our hearts, are desperately wicked, deceiving, and who can know it? So it's amazing how we can be so sure this person wronged me and they deserve this and they deserve that. And we can just be so just, and no one can speak into my life because you don't know what I've suffered. And blah, 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 right? We, we, that's where our society is. Everything is this emotion and feeling, and that's how I relate to things. But Paul comes along to the Corinthians. He says, look, if you guys would just think about what you're doing and who you are, this judgment would pass over you. Isn't that interesting? If one of them would have just been like, oh, yeah, hey, maybe we should not leave those slaves out hungry. Maybe uh, I shouldn't be worried so much about my social status and they could come and eat with me. 
Uh, maybe it doesn't matter what race they are, that, you know, at the end of the day, Jew and Gentile can get along, and, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be upset that you're a Gentile anymore, right? If we would just discern ourselves, honesty and discernment and an open ear to the Spirit, that's what we're called to. Try to be as honest with yourself as you can. Discern yourself. Ask yourself, why am I mad about this? What's the right way to go about handling this? What would glorify God the absolute most the next time I open my mouth in this conversation? What would build God's kingdom the best, you know, with the most quality that I can the next time I have an interaction with this individual? When I come and I stand before the Lord to worship him, I should discern, Lord, am I, am I right with you? Am I pretending something? What am I allowing in my life? What bitterness do I allow? What unforgiveness do I allow in my life? And then justify by saying, well, they're this way or they're that way. When I'm called to forgive everyone as Christ forgave me. When I'm called to love everyone as God loves them. Those aren't just goals. Those aren't just like airy-fairy things like Paul didn't have anything better to say or Jesus thought he'd make up something dramatic. Those are actually what we're called to do to love every other human being on the planet the way God loves them. Not in an emotional way, but in a moral way. To say, I want the best for that person, regardless of what they've done. To look at every individual and say, you have incredible value. And to, to consider myself that I would be able to be honest with God and say, you know what? I am a proud moron, God, and I'm sorry. And I don't know how to work that out of me. I am covetous. I see people's sweet houses, and I just think, I want that house. And I'm not happy with the one that I have. Or I want that boyfriend or that girlfriend. Or I want this life or that job. That I'm upset with the, with the, the, the place I'm at in life, when most likely, 99% of the time, it's because of what we did. We go, yeah, I don't deserve this. Really? Is that discerning myself? Do I really not deserve it? Or do I really do deserve it? But to, to be examined, he says, if you do that, you avoid disciplinary judgment. That's what he says, which I'm a fan of that. I don't know about you. I'm like, I'd like to skip some disciplinary judgment. That feels, seems like a positive to me. And when we're honest with ourselves and, and we're interacting with people and this love of, that God has for them through the power of the Spirit, I'm yielding to that power in my heart, then all of a sudden I have this fruitful life. An incredible life, the most fulfilling life I could imagine. So much more fulfilling than the biggest paycheck or the, the, the best relationship or whatever it might be on this earth. And he goes on there and he says, verse 32, Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way. Th these words are important. There's, there's, a, there's an article there. When we're judged in this way. So he's referring to the people that are getting sick and are dying. Okay, When we experience this in our life from God, it does something. He says there, we are being disciplined so that we will not finally be condemned with the world. So I don't claim to know all the counsels of God, but what he's saying here is that these things happened to the Corinthians. This discipline occurred, even the death, so that they would not be condemned. It was God preserving them, preserving his church and also preserving them. Verse 33, so then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather together to eat, you should all eat together. And anyone who is hungry should eat something at home, 
so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further uh, instructions. Paul sums it up by saying this. <coughs> Excuse me. He says, when you do get together to eat, what is our context? Love feasts, right? So he says, when you guys do get together and you're together to share a meal, it's not just if you're hungry, right? That's not the only purpose of the meal. You know, like, for example, we have a meal after the first Sunday of the month. You know, we do a meal together. And obviously, hopefully, it's good food, and we get to get in there and <coughs> excuse me, all eat and enjoy and whatnot. But <clears throat> the goal isn't to get as much as you can out of the buffet line, right? And I'm not saying, <clears throat> I'm, I'm not making accusations because I, I don't walk around looking at who eats what. It's not my business anyway. But the point is that if I go to the buffet line, and this is, I think, very real, if I go to the buffet line and I, and I, want, <clears throat> I want to make sure that I get everything I like, right? <clears throat> I'm going to make sure that I have enough that I'm full, and I'm going to make sure that I'm completely taken care of, then I'm going with the wrong motivation, aren't I? It's fine to go and, oh, I'm going to enjoy this. But to go and to prefer myself is not how we should go through the buffet line. But to go and look at every dish and say, well, I can take a little bit of that, but I want, you know, I want to make sure that everybody else gets some. In other words, I don't go to that buffet to make sure I'm fed. I have a house for that. Or if you need food, and I mean sincere, if you need food and tough, times are tough, come talk to us. We will provide food for you. We would love to. We'd love to help you like that. But the, the, the reason is, yeah, to be blessed, there's blessing in the food, but the reason is fellowship. To have a place where you can sit across from someone else and, and laugh with them and chew with your mouth open and just enjoy one another. To dialogue with each other. It's why we're trying so hard to get sound deadening in there, right? Just to be able to have this time where the gifts of the Spirit just flow out of you. And, and, and you're not trying to have a word of prophecy. You just share what God has given you. And someone else goes, dang, that was amazing. That, that really helped me. Right? You didn't say, everybody sit down. I have a word of prophecy now. Right? You're just like, oh, yeah, and then I read the other day, right? And they're like, oh, that was such a blessing. That was incredible. That really meets me where I'm at, right? So he says, hey, when you get together to eat, he goes, eat at home first if you're rich. And then bring all your food and give it to other people. He goes, do that. And he goes, if you do that, God will stop judging you, Corinthians, He'll stop taking you out of the way because what you're doing right now is creating more harm in, the, in, in God's community, in his kingdom, than it is good. And, and that, that's just a scary thing. And then he, and he sums it up by saying, um, when I get there, I'll have more instructions for you. So that would have been like, oh, that's like when your parents said, like, go to the room, we'll talk about it later. Like, oh. <laughs> Can we just talk about it now? Like, whatever. Uh, no, I don't know if it was like that. but it just, it just reminds me of that. Like, and when I get there, I have a couple more things to say. You're like, please just write it down. <laughs> so we have a community today. We have an opportunity for that. I want to encourage you guys. God has great things for you. He has great things for each one of us. And, and, and my giftings are not your giftings, and your giftings are not my giftings, and maybe they are or maybe they aren't. It doesn't really matter. But the reality is that when we came in this room today, when we came in the presence of one another and in the presence of God, he's called us to minister to each other. And he's equipped you to be able to do that. 
And there's work that has to be done on every one of us to, be, to hone that in and to figure things out and all that stuff. But what we can't lose sight of is that the church, the ecclesia, the called out gathering of God's people, that's all it means, called out gathering. The ecclesia, the church of God's people, is supposed to be the safest, most blessed place on the planet. That's what it's supposed to be. And so if you want to contribute to that, I would encourage you, cry out to the Lord. Lord, I want to contribute to that, but I don't know how. You can come talk to someone or somebody that you trust that that knows Jesus that you you want to just, hey, will you pray with me? Because I I want to be laying down my life and I don't know how. You know, if you're you're thinking to yourself, man, I want to learn the scriptures, but I don't know how. I I want to contribute in this this body. I don't know how. Or, you know what, honestly, I've lived my whole life where church is just kind of this thing I go to and this is kind of a new idea for me that I could actually be part of it and helpful at it. How do I do that? You know, take steps. It could be baby steps. But take steps to seek the will of God for your life, where you can serve, how you can contribute, and be part of that building up. Because he's, he's got, it, it won't be disappointing. You're not going to start serving Jesus and be like, wow, this sucks. I can't believe this. There'll be times where you say that for sure. But the overarching reality is, is you'll say to yourself, I have never been so blessed and so fulfilled than when I've given so much to other people. And that's the crazy thing about you cannot outgive God. The more you share the word, the more you, you labor, the more you do those things, the stronger you get, the more encouraged you get. I think there's also, just as a side note, there's a very physiological and mental or psychological reality in serving each other. It's kind of like when <clears throat> your buddy comes at 530 in the morning to take you to the gym and you're like, why are you here? but I'll actually go because you are here. I think something like that happens in service because when we are put in a position where we can no longer think about ourselves, it's incredible how so many of our problems go away because we just stop thinking about ourselves and we start considering others. It's incredible. And it's medicinal to the soul, I think. But anyway, if you've never known Jesus, I encourage you to cry out to him. He made a new covenant. He made a deal with all sinners. And that is that whoever believes on his name, who he is and what he did, whoever believes and trusts in the forgiveness that he purchased for us, the wrath that he absorbed from God at Calvary, that blood that was shed was an actual payment for the sin that we owe, and God sees it and is satisfied for us. And we're excused from judgment and from wrath, of the end, that end wrath. It will never touch us. And if you're here today and that message is resonating with you and you hear that and you want that, I encourage you, cry out to the Lord. Feel free to come talk to one of us. Do it in your seat. Ask him for the forgiveness that you need. Cry out and ask him for that filling of his Holy Spirit. Ask him to do that work in your life. And that, again, it will not be a point of disappointment ever. It will only be a point of joy because he has great things for you. So we'll have the communion. We've got a couple songs, and uh, feel free to partake and take it back to your seat as you uh, feel led, and uh, we'll just rejoice together as we remember him. Father, thank you for your word and your great kindness and mercy. Lord, thank you for this uh, sacrament, this time, this event that we have to remember you. Lord, you've always been so kind to us. You've never let us down. You've never done anything wrong. 
what you've only done good to us. And we acknowledge that every good gift has come down from you. Lord, that every blessing we have is from you. Lord, we thank you that you've never rewarded us for you know, giving us what we deserve. Instead, you've given us salvation and eternal life. And we praise you for that. Lord, we pray for a new filling of your spirit. We pray for a reminder uh, of your grace. We pray help us to examine ourselves, to be honest with ourselves, so that we can have and enjoy all the fellowship that you want with us. Lord, please lead us this week in ways that we can serve you and one another and be a blessing and a builder of your kingdom. We appreciate you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.